Another summer had come, and still I had not speared the giant devilfish that lived near the cave. Every day during the spring, Rantu and I went to look for him. I would put the canoe in the water and paddle slowly through the cave, from one opening to the other, often several times. I saw many devilfish there where the black water is streaked with light, but not the giant one. At last, I gave up looking for him and began to gather abalones for winter. The red shells hold the sweetest meat and are best for drying, though the green ones and the black are also good. Because the red ones are the sweetest, starfish prey upon them. This star-shaped creature places itself over the shell of an abalone. With its five arms spread out against the rock to which the abalone is fastened, it holds the shell with its suckers and then begins to lift itself. The starfish pulls against the abalone shell, sometimes for days, holding on with its suckers and pushing up with its legs until little by little the heavy shell comes loose from the body. One morning we left the cave and paddled out to the reef which is joined to it. For many days I had been gathering a few shellfish on the rocks at Coral Cove, but I had been watching the reef and waiting for the right time to harvest. This is when there are few starfish feeding, for they are as hard to pry loose from the abalone as an abalone is to pry from a rock. The tide was low and the reef rose far out of the water. Along its sides were great numbers of red abalones and very few starfish, so before the sun was high I filled the bottom of the canoe. The day was windless, and since I had all I could carry, I tied the canoe, and with Rantu following me, climbed onto the reef to look for fish to spear for our supper. Blue dolphins were leaping beyond the kelp beds. In the kelp, otter were playing at the games they never tire of. And around me, everywhere, the gulls were fishing for scallops, which were numerous that summer. They grow on the floating kelp leaves, and there were so many of them that much of the kelp near the reef had been dragged to the bottom. Still, there were scallops that the gulls could reach, and taking them in their beaks, they would fly far above the reef and let them drop. The gulls would then swoop down to the rocks and pick the meat from the broken shells. Scallops fell on the reef like rain, which amused me, but not Ronto, who could not understand what the gulls were doing. Dodging this way and that, I went to the end of the reef where the biggest fish live. With a sinew line and a hook made of abalone shell, I caught two that had large heads and long teeth, but are good to eat. I gave one to Rantu, and on the way back to the canoe gathered purple sea urchins to use for dyeing. Rantu, who was trotting along in front of me, suddenly dropped his fish and stood looking down over the edge of the reef. There, swimming in the clear water, was a devilfish. It was the same one I had been hunting for. It was the giant. Seldom did you see any devilfish here, for they like deep places, and the water along this part of the reef is shallow. Perhaps this one lived in the cave and came here only when he could not find food. Rantu made no sound. I fixed the head of the spear and the long string that held it to my wrist. I then crawled back to the edge of the reef. The giant had not moved. He was floating just below the surface of the water, and I could plainly see his eyes. They were the size of small stones and stood out from his head with black rims and gold centers and in the centers a black spot, like the eyes of a spirit I had once seen on a night that rain fell and lightning forked in the sky. Where my hands rested was a deep crevice and in it a fish was hiding. The giant was half the length of my spear from the reef, but while I watched, one of his long arms ran out like a snake and felt its way into the crevice. It went past the fish and along the side of the rock, and then the end of it curled back. 
As the arm gently wound itself around the fish from behind, I rose to one knee and drove the spear. I aimed at the giant's head, but though it was larger than my two fishes and a good target, I missed. The spear struck down through the water and slanted off. Instantly, a black cloud surrounded the devilfish. The only thing I could see of him was one long arm still grasping his prey. I jumped to my feet to pull in the spear, thinking that I might have a chance to throw it again. As I did so, the shaft bobbed back to the surface, and I saw that the barbed point had come loose. At the same moment, the string tightened. My grip on it broke, and aware that I had struck the devilfish, I quickly dropped the coils I held, for when the string runs out fast, it burns your hands or becomes entangled. The devilfish does not swim with fins or flippers like other things in the sea. He takes water in through the hole in the front of his body and pushes the water out behind through two slits. When he is swimming slowly, you can see these two streams trailing out, but only then. When he moves fast, you can see nothing except a streak in the water. The quails I had dropped on the rock hopped and sang as they ran. Then there were no more of them. The string tightened on my wrist, and to lessen the shock, I leaped across the crevice in the direction the giant had taken. With the string in both hands, but still fastened to my wrist, I braced my feet on the slippery rock and leaned backwards. The string snapped tight with the weight of the devilfish. It began to stretch, and fearing that it might break, I walked forward, yet I made him pull me every step. He was moving toward the cave along the edge of the reef. The cave was a good distance away. If he got there, I would surely lose him. The canoe was tied just in front of me. Once I was in it, I could let him pull me until he grew tired, but there was no way to untie the canoe and still hold on to the string. Rantu all this time was running up and down the reef, barking and leaping at me, which made my task harder. Step by step, I walked forward until the devilfish was in the deep water close to the cave. He was so close that I had to stop, even if the sinew broke and I lost him. I therefore braced myself and did not move. The sinew stretched, throwing off drops of water. I could hear it stretch, and I was sure it would break. I did not feel it cutting into my hands, though they bled. The pull suddenly lessened, and I was sure that he was gone. But the next instant, I saw the string cutting the water in a wide circle. He was swimming off from the cave in the reef towards some rocks that were about twice the length of the string away. He would be safe there, too, for among them were many places to hide. I pulled in half the string while he was moving toward the rocks, but soon had to let it out. It grew tight and again began to stretch. The water here was only a little over my waist, and I let myself down over the reef. There was a sandbar not far from the rocks, and stepping carefully on the bottom, which was full of holes, I slowly made my way toward it. Rantu swam along by my side. I reached the sandbar before the devilfish could hide himself in the rocks. The string held, and he turned about and once more swam toward the cave. Twice again he did this. Each time, I took in some of the string. The third time, as he came up into the shallow water, I walked backward across the sandbar so he would not see me and pulled on the string with all my strength. The giant slid up on the sand. He lay with his arms spread out, partly in the water, and I thought he was dead. Then I saw his eyes moving. Before I could shout a warning, Rantu had rushed forward and seized him, but the devilfish was too heavy to lift or shake. As Rantu's jaws sought another hold, three of the many arms wound themselves around his neck. 
Devilfish are only dangerous when in the water where they can fasten themselves to you with their long arms. These arms have rows of suckers underneath them, and they can drag you under and hold you there until you drown. But even on land, the devilfish can injure you, for he is strong and does not die quickly. The giant was flailing his arms, struggling to get back into the water. Little by little, he was dragging Rontu with him. I could no longer use the string because it was wound around Rontu's legs. The whalebone knife I used for prying abalones from the rocks was tied to a thong at my waist. The blade was thick at the point, but had a sharp edge. I dropped the coils of string and unfastened the knife as I ran. I ran past the devilfish and got between him and the deep water. So many of his arms were flailing that it was useless to cut any one of them. One struck me on the leg and burned like a whip. Another, which Rontu had chewed off, lay wriggling at the edge of the water as if it were looking for something to fasten onto. The head rose out of the twisting arms like a giant stalk. The gold eyes with their black rims were fixed on me. Above the sounds of the waves and the water splashing and Rontu's barking, I could hear the snapping of his beak, which was sharper than the knife I held in my hand. I drove the knife down into his body, and as I did this, I was suddenly covered, or so it seemed, with a countless number of leeches sucking at my skin. Fortunately, one hand was free, the hand that held the knife, and again and again I struck down through the tough hide. The suckers, which were fastened to me and pained greatly, lessened their hold. Slowly, the arms stopped moving and then grew limp. I tried to drag the devilfish out of the water, but my strength was gone. I did not even go back to the reef for my canoe, though I did take the shaft and the head of the spear, which had cost me much labor, in the sinew line. It was night before Rontu and I got back to the house. Rontu had a gash on his nose from the giant's beak, and I had many cuts and bruises. I saw two more giant devilfish along the reef that summer, but I did not try to spear them. I gathered two more canoe loads of abalone soon after that, mostly the sweet red ones, which I cleaned and carried to the house. Along the south part of the fence, where the sun shone most of the day, I built long shelves out of branches and put the meat up to dry. Abalones are larger than your hand and twice as thick when fresh, but they shrink small in the sun, so you have to dry many. In the old days on the island, there were children to keep away the gulls, which would rather feast on abalones than anything else. In one morning, if the meat was left unguarded, they could fly off with a month's harvest. At first, whenever I went to the spring or to the beach, I left Rantu behind to chase them off, but he did not like this and howled all the time I was gone. Finally, I tied strings to some of the abalone shells and hung them from poles. The insides of the shells are bright and catch the sun, and they turn one way and another in the wind. After that, I had little trouble with the gulls. I also caught small fish in a net I had made and hung them up to dry for winter light. With meat drying on the shelves and the shells flashing and turning in the wind and the strings of fish hanging on the fence, the yard looked as if a whole village were living there on the headland instead of just Rontu and me. Every morning after I had gathered food for winter, we went out on the sea. At the end of summer, I would gather roots and seeds to store, but now there was nothing that needed to be done. We went many places those first days of summer, to the beach where the sea elephants lived, 
to Black Cave, which was even larger than the first cave we found, and to Tall Rock, where the cormorants roosted. Tall Rock was more than a league from the island and was black and shimmering because it was covered with cormorants. I killed ten of the birds the first time we went there, and I skinned and fleshed them and put them out to dry, for someday I wanted to make myself a skirt of cormorant feathers. Black Cave was on the south coast of the island near the place where the canoes were stored. In front of the cave was a high ledge of rocks surrounded by deep kelp beds, and I would have paddled by it if I had not seen a seahawk fly out. The sun was in the west and I had a long way to go to reach home, but I was curious about the hawk and the place he lived in. The opening of the cave was small, like the one in the cave under the headland, and Rantu and I had to crouch low to get through. Weak light came from outside, and I saw that we were in a room with black shining walls that curved high overhead. At the far end of the room was another small opening. It was long and very dark, but when we reached the end of it, we were in another room, which was larger than the first, and lit with a shaft of light. The light came from the sun, which shone down through a jagged crack in the ceiling. Seeing the sun shining down and the black shadows drifting over the walls, Rantu barked, then began to howl. The sound echoed through the cave like the howling of a whole pack of dogs. It sent a cold feeling down my back. Be quiet! I shouted, putting my hand over his jaws. My words echoed and echoed in the room. I turned the canoe around and started back toward the opening. Above it, on a deep ledge that ran from one side of the room to the other, my gaze fell upon a row of strange figures. There must have been two dozen of them standing against the black wall. They were as tall as I with long arms and legs and short bodies made of reeds and clothed in gull feathers. Each one had eyes fashioned of round or oblong discs of abalone shell, but the rest of their faces were blank. The eyes glittered down at me, moved as the light on the water moved and was reflected upon them. They were more alive than the eyes of those who live. In the middle of the group was a seated figure, a skeleton, it sat leaning against the wall with its knees drawn up and in its fingers, which were raised to its mouth, a flute of pelican bone. There were other things there on the ledge, in the shadows among the standing figures. But having drifted far back in the room, I again paddled toward the opening. I had forgotten that the tide was coming in. To my great surprise, the opening had narrowed. It was too small now for me to get through. We would have to stay there in the room until the tide went out, until dawn came. I paddled to the far end of the cave. I did not look back at the glittering eyes of the figures on the ledge. I crouched in the bottom of the canoe and watched the shaft of light grow weak. The opening out to the sea grew smaller and finally disappeared. Night came and a star showed through the crevice overhead. This star passed out of sight and another took its place. The tide lifted the canoe higher in the room, and as the water lapped against the walls, it sounded like the soft music of a flute. It played many tunes through the long night, and I slept little, watching the stars change. I knew that the skeleton who sat on the ledge playing his flute was one of my ancestors, and the others with the glittering eyes, though only images were too. But still, I was sleepless and afraid. 
With the first light, another high tide almost setting, we left the cave. I did not look up at those standing quietly on the ledge or at the flute player playing for them, but paddled fast out into the morning sea, nor did I look back. I suppose this cave once had a name, I said to Rantu, who was as glad to be free as I was. But I have never heard of it or heard it spoken about. We will call it Black Cave and never in all our days go there again. When we came back from our voyage to Tall Rock, I hid the canoe in the cave below the headland. It was hard work, but each time I would lift the canoe from the water and onto the ledge, even though I planned to go out the next morning. Two summers had come and gone, and the Aleut hunters had not returned. Yet during these days, I always looked for them. At dawn, as Rontu and I went down the cliff, I would watch the ocean for their sails. The summer air was clear, and I could see many leagues. Wherever we went in the canoe, I would never be gone longer than half a day. On the way home, I always paddled close to shore and looked for them. It was the last time that we went to Tall Rock that the Aleuts came. I had hidden the canoe and climbed the cliff with the ten cormorant skins slung over my back. At the top of the cliff, I stood for a while gazing at the sea. There were some small clouds on the water. One of them, the smallest, did not look like the others, and as I watched, I saw that it was a ship. The sun made bright scales on the water, but I could see clearly. There were two sails, and it was a ship coming toward the island. For a long time, I could not tell the color of the sails. I wondered if it could be the white men, though now I thought about them little and seldom looked for them. I left the cormorants hanging on the fence and went to the rock on the headland. I could see no better from the rock because the sun was low and the whole ocean was covered with light. Then as I stood there, I remembered that the white man's ship would come from the east. This one had come from a different direction, from the north. I still was not sure that it belonged to the Aleuts, but I decided to pack the things that I would take to the cave in the ravine. There was much to take. My two birds, the skirt I had made, the stone utensils, my beads and earrings, the cormorant feathers, and all of my baskets and weapons. The abalones were not yet dry, so I would have to leave them. When I had packed everything and put it beside the hole under the fence, I went back to the headland. I lay on the rock so I would not be seen and peered over its rim toward the north. For a moment I did not find the ship, and then I saw that it had traveled faster than I thought it would. It was already rounding the kelp bed close to the rocks of Coral Cove. The last of the sun shone on the ship, on the bow, which was made like the beak of a bird, and on the two red sails. I knew that the Aleuts would not come on shore in the dark, and that I had until morning to carry my things to the cave, but I did not wait. Most of the night I worked, making two trips to the cave. At dawn, when everything had been moved, I went back to the house for the last time. There I buried the ashes of my fires and threw sand over the shelves and the floor. I took down the shells I had put up to scare the gulls and tossed them and the abalones over the cliff. At last, with a pelican wing, I brushed away the marks of my feet. When I had finished, it looked as though no one had lived there for a long time. By now the sun was up, and I climbed onto the rock. The ship lay at anchor in the cove. Canoes were bringing goods to the shore, and some were out in the kelp beds, beginning to hunt for otter. There was a fire on the shore, and beside it, a girl. 
She was cooking something, and I could see the fire shining on her hair. I did not stay long on the headland. Always in the past, I had gone to the ravine by a different way so as not to wear a trail. This time, I went off toward the west, along the cliff, and then doubled back through the brush, being careful to leave no tracks. Rantu's prints did not matter because the Aleuts knew that there were dogs on the island. The cave was very dark, and I had trouble getting Rantu to go through the small opening. Only after I had crawled in and out several times would he follow me. I closed the opening with stones, and since I was tired, lay down and slept all that day. I slept until I could see the stars shining between the cracks and the rocks. I did not take Rantu with me when I left the cave that night, and I closed the opening so that he would not follow me, for if the Aleuts had brought their dogs, he would surely smell them out. I went quietly through the brush to the headland. Before I had climbed to the top of the high rock, I could see the glow of the Alut fires. They had camped on the mesa, at the place and the spring they had used before. It was less than half a league from my cave. I stood for a long time watching the fires, wondering if I should move to another part of the island, perhaps to the cave where the wild dogs had lived. I was not afraid that the men would discover me because they worked on the beach or hunted in their canoes all day. It was the girl I was afraid of. The ravine was tangled with brush, which was hard to walk through, but in the ravine grew seeds and roots. Sometime when she was out looking for food, she might wander by the spring and see that it was being used and find my steps leading to the cave. I stood on the rock until the Aleut fires died. I thought of everything I could do, of the different places I could go, and at last decided to stay in the ravine. The far end of the island had no springs, and if I moved there, I would have no place to hide the canoe which I might need. I went back to the cave and did not leave it until the moon was full. There was little food left. Rantu and I climbed to the headland, and when we passed the house, I saw that three of the whale ribs had been cut from the fence. No one was there, or else Rantu would have barked. I waited until the tide was low, which was close to dawn, and filled a basket with seawater and abalones. We were back in the cave before it grew light. The seawater kept the abalones fresh, but when we had to go out again, the night was too dark to find our way to the reef. I therefore had to gather roots. I could never gather many before the sun rose, so I went out every morning until the next moon came. Then I went to the reef for abalones. During all this time, I saw none of the Aleuts. Nor did the girl come near the cave, though I found her footsteps far down the ravine where she had been to dig roots. The Aleuts had not brought their dogs, which was fortunate, for they would have found Rantu's tracks and followed us to the cave. The days were long for Rantu and me. At first, he would pace up and down the cave and stand at the opening, sniffing through the cracks. I did not let him out, except when I was with him for fear he would go to the camp and not come back. After a while, he got used to this and would lie all day and watch whatever I was doing. It was dark in the cave, even when the sun was high, so I burned the small fish I had stored. 
By their light, I began to make a cormorant skirt, working every day on it. The ten skins I had taken at Tall Rock were now dry and in condition to sew. All of them were from male cormorants, whose feathers are thicker than those of the females and much glossier. The skirt of yucca fibers was simple to make. I wanted this one to be better, so I cut the skins carefully and sewed them with great care. I made the bottom first, putting the skins end to end and using three of them. For the rest of the skirt, I sewed the others along their sides so that the feathers ran one way on the upper part and a different way along the bottom. It was a beautiful skirt, and I finished it on the day after the second moon. I had burned all of the little fish, and since I could catch no more until the Aleuts left, I took the skirt outside to work on it there. I had found footsteps in the ravine twice again after the first time, but no closer to the cave. I had begun to feel safe, for the winter storms would soon be here and the Aleuts would leave. Before another moon, they would be gone. I had never seen the skirt in the sunlight. It was black, but underneath were green and gold colors, and all the feathers shimmered as though they were on fire. It was more beautiful than I had thought it would be. I worked fast now that it was almost finished, yet from time to time I would stop to hold it against my waist. Rantu, I said, feeling giddy with happiness. If you were not a male dog, I would make you one too, as beautiful as this. Rantu, who was sprawled out at the mouth of the cave, raised his head and yawned at me and went back to sleep. I was standing in the sunlight, holding the skirt to my waist, when Rantu leaped to his feet. I heard the sound of steps. It came from the direction of the spring, and as I turned quickly, I saw a girl looking down at me from the brush. My spear stood beside the mouth of the cave within easy reach. The girl was not more than ten paces from me, and with one movement, I could have picked up the spear and thrown it. Why I did not throw the spear, I do not know, for she was one of the Aleuts who had killed my people on the beach of Coral Cove. She said something, and Rantu left the mouth of the cave and walked slowly toward her. The hair raised on his neck, but then he walked to where she stood and let her touch him. The girl looked at me and made a motion with her hands, which I took to mean that Rantu was hers. No, I cried and shook my head. I picked up my spear. She started to turn, and I thought that she was going to flee back through the brush. She made another motion, which I took to mean that Rantu was now mine. I did not believe her. I held the spear over my shoulder, ready to throw. Tutak, she said, pointing to herself. I did not say my name. I called Rantu, and he came back. The girl looked at him and then at me and smiled. She was older than I, but not so tall. She had a broad face and small eyes that were very black. When she smiled, I saw that her teeth were worn down from chewing seal sinew, but they were very white. I was still holding the cormorant skirt, and the girl pointed to it and said something. There was one word, winscha, which sounded like a word that means pretty in our language. I was so proud of the skirt that I did not think. The spear was in my hand, but I held up the skirt so the sunlight could shine on all of it. The girl jumped down from the ledge and came over to me and touched it. Winscha, she said again. I did not say the word, but she wanted to hold the skirt and I gave it to her. She put it against her waist and let it fall from her hips, turning one way and the other. She was graceful, and the skirt flowed around her like water, but I hated the Aleuts and took it from her. Winscha, she said. I had not heard words spoken for so long that they sounded strange to me, 
yet they were good to hear, even though it was an enemy who spoke them. She said other words I did not understand, but now as she spoke, she looked over my shoulder toward the cave. She pointed to the cave and then to me, and made gestures as if she were making a fire. I knew what she wanted me to say, but I did not say it. She wished to know if I lived there in the cave so she could come back with the men and take me to their camp. I shook my head and pointed to the far end of the island, away, away, for I did not trust her. She kept looking toward the cave, but she said nothing more about it. I held a spear, which I could have thrown. I did not, though I feared she would return with the hunters. She came over to me and touched my arm. I did not like the feel of her hand. She said more words and smiled again and walked to the spring and drank. The next moment, she had disappeared in the brush. Rantu did not try to follow her. She made no noise as she went. I crawled back in the cave and began to pack the things I owned. I had all the day to do it because the men were working and would not return to their camp before night. By nightfall, I was ready to go. I planned to take my canoe and go to the west part of the island. I could sleep there on the rocks until the Aleuts left, moving from place to place if I needed to. I carried five baskets up the ravine and hid them near my house. It was getting dark and I had to go back to the cave for two that were left. Carefully, I crawled through the brush and stopped just above the mouth of the cave and listened. Rantu was beside me and he listened also. No one could go through the brush in the dusk without making a sound, except someone who had lived in it for a long time. I went past the spring and waited and then on to the cave. I felt that someone had been there while I had been away. They could be hiding in the dark watching me. They were waiting until I went into the cave. I was afraid, so I did not go in, but quickly turned around. As I did so, I saw something in front of the cave on the flat rock I used for a step. It was a necklace of black stones of a kind I had never seen. 